a note to the hearer. Those who give careful reading to studies in the scriptures will discover the studies differ in several respects from many other religious periodicals. There is little in this publication that will appeal to the popular reader. If this magazine be read as a newspaper is read, little profit to the soul will be obtained. What we solicit from our subscribers is this. First, that before taking up any article herein, the reader will lift up his or her heart to God and earnestly ask Him for a spirit of discernment to recognize His truth and an open heart to receive it. Second, that to this end, the reader will study each article with an open Bible before him, turning to each passage quoted to see whether or not the writer proves what he says by a thus saith the Lord. And a third, that he reads slowly, critically and thoughtfully what is presented in these pages. God has said in his word, He that believeth shall not make haste, Isaiah 28.16. And if ever there was a time when his children needed to give special heed to this admonition, it is now. The children of God are infected with the spirit of the world. The mad rush which characterizes everything around us, the awful hustle and bustle of the ungodly as they rush headlong to eternal death, has affected the members of the household of faith, and few, if any of us, are free from it. One of our most urgent needs is to be delivered from this feverish spirit, for it is rapidly sapping the spiritual vitality of many of God's people. The irreverent speed at which the Holy Scriptures are read in the average pulpit, the rate at which sacred songs are commonly sung, the unholy manner in which many rush into the presence of the Most High God and gabble off the first words that come to their lips, are so many examples of this infection. And alas, the same Spirit possesses most of us when we read the Word of God and expositions of that Word. We earnestly ask our readers to make a prayerful study of the words stand, sit, wait, carry, as they are found in Holy Writ. The title of this magazine implies that it is designed not for lazy people or for those who are so busily occupied with the things of this world that they have no time, in reality no heart, for the things of God. No, it is published for the benefit of those who are or who wish to become students of Scripture. The articles herein call for study, thoughtful perusal, prolonged meditation. Finally, let not this magazine become a substitute for your own daily study of God's Word. Rather, let it be an incentive for further search on your part to discover the priceless treasures hidden therein. This is from the life of Arthur W. Pink by I. H. Murray, pages 23 and 24. Turning now to February 1932, Studies in the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures, John 5.39. Editor, 
Arthur W. Pink, 1886-1952. The six studies in the contents are The Anointing of Christ, The Epistle to the Hebrews, The Life of David, Profiting from the Word, The True Gospel, and The Two Builders. Also, Praise the Lord by the Editor. Study number one, The Anointing of Christ. The theme of our present article is inseparably connected with that of the preceding one, the mediation of Christ. To connect the two, it should be pointed out that Holy Writ ascribes to our blessed Savior a number of other precious titles which are synonymous with that of Mediator. Among them is that of the Christ, or Anointed One. But ere considering it, let us mention several others. As Mediator, Christ meets the deep longing of Job, who lamented, Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hands upon us both. Chapter 9, verse 33. As mediator, Christ is surety of a better testament. Hebrews 7:22. So also is he an advocate with the Father. 1 John 2:1. Another name or title of Christ's equivalent to the mediator is that of the messenger, angel of the covenant. Malachi 3:1. This opens to us a most interesting subject into which we cannot now enter at length, but there are many, many passages both in the Old Testament and the Revelation which cannot be understood aright unless we perceive that the angel or the angel messenger of the Lord has specific reference to the Son of God in his mediatorial character. For instance, Jacob speaks of the angel which redeemed me from all evil. Genesis 48:18. The angel of the Lord appeared unto Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, proclaiming himself to be the God of Abraham and so forth. Exodus 3, 2 and 6. In Exodus 32:34, Jehovah promised Moses, Mine angel shall go before them which is explained in chapter 33, verse 14, My presence shall go with thee. Another remarkable passage which presents Christ exercising his mediatorial office in Old Testament times is found in Zechariah 1.12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem? There we behold Christ making intercession for his erring people. Another blessed scripture is that of Revelation 8, 3, and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints 
ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. It is for the sake of Christ's merits that the prayers of saints on earth find acceptance with God in heaven. Coming now to our immediate subject, Christ signifies the Anointed One. It is His official title, as Jesus is His personal name. These two titles are applied to Him as our proper and surname to us. Jesus is the anglicized form of Joshua, which signifies Savior. This name, Jesus, was given to Him by God Himself, Luke 1.31. After He was conceived, but Before he was born, it was said to Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 Thus fulfilling Isaiah 49.1 By this name, his people are constantly put in mind of the great object for which the Son of God became incarnate. Christ refers to his official character, Jesus, which is called Christ, Matthew 1.16, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, Luke 2.11. The Westminster Catechism, 1634, says, Why was our Mediator called Christ? Answer. Our Mediator was called Christ because He was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure, and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the office of prophet, priest, and king of His church in the estate both of His humiliation and exaltation. As was pointed out in a previous article, The correct translation of Proverbs 8.23 is, I was anointed from everlasting, from the beginning, or ever the earth was. The speaker is the eternal Son conversing with the Father in regard to the everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13.20 He was anointed as mediator before the universe was created being then invested with that office. As a lamb without blemish and without spot, he verily was foreordained before the world. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20. Therefore was it that he exercised this office all through the Old Testament dispensation, and therefore was it that God's elect were redeemed and taken then to heaven. Quoting John Dick, 1850, Our Savior is called in the Old Testament the Messiah, and in the New Testament the Christ. And both words import that He was the Anointed One. This designation is given to Him in allusion to the rite by which persons were consecrated to their offices under the former dispensation, namely, by being anointed with oil. The inauguration of Israel's kings to the throne was by anointing with oil, 1 Samuel 10, 1, 16, 13, 
2 Samuel 5, 3, 1 Kings 1, 39, and so forth. When this was done by divine appointment, it signified two things, a deputation unto the kingdom, an ability to execute the royal function. The great emphasis which the Holy Spirit has placed upon this official designation of our Saviour's may be seen from the following passages, wherein he is referred to as the Christ. John twenty thirty one, That Christ. John six sixty nine, Very Christ. Acts nine twenty two, The Lord's Christ. Luke two twenty six, The Christ of God. Luke nine twenty. This official title of our Saviors denotes three things. First, the offices or functions which the Son of God took for the salvation of His people. These were three in number, and each was foreshadowed of old. The prophetic, 1 Kings 19.16, and Psalm 105.15. The priestly, Leviticus 8.12 and 30, and Psalm 132.2. The kingly, 1 Samuel 10.1. Second, the right which he had to undertake those functions. He who anointed the Lord Jesus was the Father, Acts 10.38, thereby appointing and authorizing him, Hebrews 5.5. Thirdly, his ability to perform those functions whereunto he was anointed. Therefore did he declare, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach and so forth. Luke 4.18 That expression, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, referred to that divine endowment which had been conferred upon him. Compare John 3.34 The anointing of the Lord Jesus then has reference to God's solemn appointment of his Son to the mediatorial office and, when incarnate, furnishing him with all the requisite qualifications. Historically, this received a threefold fulfillment. First, at his miraculous conception in the womb of the Virgin, Luke one thirty-five, when his humanity was sanctified by the Holy Spirit and endowed with all graces. Second, at his baptism for entrance upon his public ministry, Matthew 3.16 and Acts 10.38. The Holy Spirit descending from the open heaven, resting upon him in a visible form in conjunction with the voice which proceeded from the excellent glory, denoted that the Father owned him as his incarnate Son and bestowed upon him an abundant measure of heavenly influences. In this manner, he was publicly installed in his office and fitted for the discharge of his duties. Then was fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 11, 2-5. The fullest 
and final anointing of the Mediator took place upon his ascension. Then was fulfilled that blessed word, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a righteous scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Psalm 45, 6 and 7. It was at his ascension that Christ received the Spirit not only in a greater measure, John 3.34, than any of his brethren, but also in a way wholly different from them. As some are puzzled by the expression, Thy God, in the quotation, a word or two on it is called for. God, even thy God hath anointed thee. God was Christ's God, first in respect of his human nature, as he was made of a woman, made under the law. Second, in respect of his whole person, God and man, as he was designated unto the whole work of mediation. So Christ owned himself, Matthew 27:46, and John 20:17. It is in this last sense that God is here said to be Christ's God, that is, his God in a special covenant as he was appointed to be the head and king of his church, for therein did the Father undertake to be with him, stand by him, convey him through his work, and in the end to crown him with glory. Compare Isaiah 49, 1-11, chapter 50, verses 4-7. to Hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The general reference is to the exceeding high honors which were bestowed upon Christ when he had so gloriously completed his work on earth, namely, the exalting of him above all created beings and the seating of him at God's right hand. More specifically, the allusion is to what is mentioned in Acts 2.33 when he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit which he shed forth on his ministers and people. Compare Revelation 3.1. Christ is still exercising his mediatorial office, for he has gone into heaven now to appear in the presence of God for us. Hebrews 9.24. It only remains to add that by virtue of the mystical and spiritual union which exists between Christ and his people, they too, his fellows, are anointed, 2 Corinthians 1.21, with the Spirit, and therefore are denominated Christians, 1 Peter 4.16. Yea, the church and its head together as a whole is termed Christ, 1 Corinthians 12.12 and Galatians 3.16. Arthur Pink Study number two The Epistle to the Hebrews Access to God Hebrews ten nineteen to twenty three
The verses which are now to engage our attention contain the Apostle's transition from the doctrinal to the practical part of the Epistle, for privileges and duties are never to be separated. Having at great length discoursed upon the priestly office of Christ in the foregoing part of the Epistle, he now sums up in a few words the scope and substance of all he had been saying, verses 19 to 21, and then draws the plain inference from the whole, verse 22. Like a wise master builder, he first digs till he comes to the foundation and then calls himself and others to build upon it with confidence. Having demonstrated the vast superiority of Christianity over Judaism, the Apostle now exhorts his Christian hearers to avail themselves of all their blessed advantages and enjoy the great privileges which have been conferred upon them. A. Saphir said, The Apostle's great argument is concluded and the result is placed before us in a very short summary. We have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. And we have in the heavenly sanctuary a great priest over the house of God. All difficulties have been removed, perfectly and forever. We have access, and he who is the way is also the end of the way. He is even now our great priest interceding for us and our all-sufficient mediator providing us with every needful help. On this foundation rests a threefold exhortation. Number one, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith. Number two, let us hold fast the profession of hope without wavering. Number three, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, laboring and waiting together, and helping one another in the unity of brethren. Faith, hope, and love. This is the threefold result of Christ's entrance into heaven, spiritually discerned. A believing, hoping, and loving attitude of heart corresponds to the new covenant revelation of divine grace. Unquote. John Owen said, In these words, the apostle enters on the last part of the epistle, which is wholly hortatory. For though there be some occasional intermixtures of doctrine consonant to those which are insisted on before, yet the professed design of the whole remainder of the epistle is to propose to and press on the Hebrews such duties of various sorts as the truths he had insisted on do direct unto and make necessary to all that believe. And in all his exhortations there is a mixture of the ground of the duties exhorted to, of their necessity, and of the privilege which we have in being admitted to them and accepted with them, all taken from the priesthood and sacrifice of Christ, 
with the effects of them and the benefits which we receive thereby. Unquote. The same order of truth may be clearly seen in other epistles of the Apostle Paul. In Romans, the first eleven chapters are devoted to doctrinal exposition, the next four being practical, setting forth the Christian's duties. See Romans 12.1. Likewise in Ephesians, the first three chapters set forth the sovereign grace of God, the last three, the Christian's responsibilities. See chapter 4, verse 1. From this, the teacher and preacher may gather important instruction, showing him how to handle the word so that the whole man may be edified. The understanding needs to be enlightened, the conscience searched and comforted, the heart inflamed, the will moved, the affections well ordered. Nothing but doctrine will produce a cold and conceited people. Nothing but exhortation, a discouraged and ill-instructed people. Quoting from John Brown, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, verse 19, the preceding part of this epistle has been chiefly occupied with stating, proving, and illustrating some of the grand peculiarities of Christian doctrine, and the remaining part of it is entirely devoted to an injunction and enforcement of those duties which naturally result from the foregoing statements. The paragraph, verses 19 to 23, obviously consists of two parts, a statement of principles which are taken for granted as having been fully proved, and an injunction of duties grounded on the admission of these principles. Unquote. The great privilege which is here announced unto Christians is that they may draw near unto God as accepted worshippers. This privilege is presented under a recapitulation of the principal points which the Apostle had been treating of, namely, first, Christians have liberty to enter the presence of God, verse 19. Second, a way has been prepared for them so to do, verse 20. Third, a guide is provided to direct them in that way, verse 21. These three points are here amplified by showing the nature of this liberty. It is with boldness to enter the presence of God, and that by virtue of Christ's blood. The way is described as a new and living one, and it is ready for our use because Christ has consecrated it. The guide is presented by his function, priest. His dignity, great. His authority, over the house of God. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, to enter into the holiest is as verse 22 shows, to draw near unto God in Christ 
For no one cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14.6 The holiest here is only another name for heaven, the dwelling place of God being designated so in this instance because the holy of holies in the tabernacle and the temple was the type thereof. This is established by what was before us in chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. It is most blessed to link with chapter 10, verse 19, what is said in chapter 9, verse 12. By his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, the title of the members of his body for entering in the sanctuary on high is the same as that of their heads. The boldness to enter into the holiest, which is spoken of in our text, is not to be limited to the Christians going to heaven at death or at the return of the Savior, but is to be understood as referring to that access unto God in spirit and by faith which he now has. Here again we see the tremendous contrast from the conditions obtaining under the Old and the New Covenants. Under Judaism as such, the Israelites were rigidly excluded from drawing nigh unto Jehovah. His dwelling place was sealed against them. Nay, even the Levites, privileged as they were to minister in the tabernacle, were barred from the Holy of Holies. But now the right has been accorded unto all who partake of the blessings of the new covenant, to enjoy free access unto God, to draw near unto his throne as supplicants, to enter his temple as worshippers, to sit at his table as happy children. Most blessedly was this set forth by Christ in the close of that remarkable parable in Luke 15. There we find the prodigal having come to himself saying, I will arise and go to my father. He arose and went. And where do we find him? Outside the door or looking in at the window? No, but inside the house. Sovereign grace had given him boldness to enter, and why not? Having confessed his sins, he had received the kiss of reconciliation, and the best robe had been placed upon him, and thus he was fitted to enjoy the Father's house. In perfect accord with our Lord's teaching, in that parable, we have been told here in Hebrews 10, that by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And because of this, God has put his laws into their hearts, written them upon their minds, and avowed that their sins and iniquities he would remember no more. Here then is the force of the therefore in our present verse. Inasmuch as Christ satisfaction has removed every legal obstacle, and inasmuch as the work of the Spirit in the Christian 
has made him meet to be partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light, Colossians 1.12, there is not only nothing to hinder, but every reason and motive to induce us to draw near unto God and pour out our hearts before Him in thanksgiving, praise, and worship. In chapter 4, verse 16, we are invited to come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But here in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, it is worship which is more specifically in view. Entrance into the holiest, which was the place of worship and communion. See Numbers 7, 89. A further word of explanation needs to be given on the term boldness. Sophia rightly pointed out that this expression must be understood here objectively, not subjectively, else the subsequent exhortation would be meaningless. In other words, the reference is to something outside ourselves and not to a condition of heart. Literally, the Greek signifies, having therefore, brethren, boldness for entrance into the holiest, and hence some have rendered it the right of entrance. Most probably, the word is designed to point a double contrast from conditions under the Old Covenant. Those under it had a legal prohibition against entering the sacred abode of Jehovah, but Christians have a perfect title to do so. Again, those under Judaism were afraid to do so, whereas faith now perceives that we may come to God with the fullest assurance, because He has accepted us in the Beloved. Ephesians 1.6 There is no valid reason why we should hesitate to draw near unto our Father in perfect freedom of spirit. By the blood of Jesus, this is the meritorious cause which procures the Christian's right of entrance into the holiest, the place where all the tokens of God's grace and glory are displayed. Chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. The blood of the Jewish sacrifices did not and could not obtain such liberty of access into the immediate presence of God. The blood of Jesus has done so both in respect unto God as an oblation and in respect unto the consciences of believers by its application. As an oblation or sacrifice, the atonement of Christ has removed every legal obstacle between God and believers. It fulfilled the demands of His law, removed its curse, and broke down the middle wall of partition. In token whereof, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom when the Savior expired. So, too, the Holy Spirit has so applied the efficacy of the blood to the consciences of Christians that they are delivered from a sense of guilt, freed from their dread of God and enabled to approach Him in a spirit of liberty. Quoting again from John Owen, 
by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Verse 20. This presents to us the second inducement and encouragement for Christians to avail themselves and make use of the unspeakable privilege which Christ has secured for them. In order to understand these verses, it is necessary to bear in mind that New Testament privileges are here expressed in the Old Testament dialect. The highest privilege of fallen man is to have access unto the presence of God, his offended Lord and Sovereign. The only way of approach is through Christ, of whom the tabernacle and the temple was an illustrious type. In allusion to those figures, Christ is here presented to our faith in a threefold view. First, as a gate or door by which we enter into the holiest. No sooner had Adam sinned than the door of access to the majesty of God was bolted against him and all his posterity. The cherubim with the flaming sword standing in his way. Genesis 3.24 But now, the flaming sword of justice being quenched in the blood of the surety, Zechariah 13.7 The door of access is again wide open. The infinite wisdom of God has devised a way how his banished may be brought home again to his presence. 2 Samuel 14.14 Namely, through the satisfaction of Christ. Second, to encourage us in our approaches to God in Christ, he is also presented to us under the figure of a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us. Having told us that we have an entrance into the holiest, he now declares what the way is whereby we may do so. The only way into the holiest under the tabernacle was a passage with blood through the sanctuary and then a turning aside of the veil. But the whole church was forbidden the use of this way and it was appointed for no other end but typically that in due time there should be a way opened unto believers into the presence of God which was not yet prepared. And this the Apostle describes, first, from the preparation of it, which he hath consecrated, second, from the properties of it. It was a new and living way. Third, from the tendency of it, which he expresses first, typically, or with respect unto the old way under the tabernacle. It was through the veil. Secondly, in an exposition of that type, that is, his flesh. In the whole, there is a description of the exercise of faith in our access unto God by Christ Jesus. Unquote. In the previous verse, it was declared that heaven has been opened unto the people of God. But here, Christ is set forth more as the antitype of that ladder. 
Genesis 28.12, John 1.51, which being set up on earth, reaches to heaven. In this respect, Christ is styled the way, the truth, and the life, John 14.6, for he is the only true way which conducts unto God. That way is variously referred to in Scripture as the way of life, Proverbs 10.17, the way of holiness, Isaiah 35.8, the good way, Jeremiah 6.16, the way of peace, Luke 1.79, the way of salvation, Acts 16.17. All of these refer to the same thing, namely, the only path unto heaven. Christ himself is that way in a twofold sense. First, when the heart turns away from every other object which competes for the first place in its affections, abandons all confidence in its own righteousness, and lays hold of the Savior. Second, when grace is diligently sought to take Christ as our exemplar, following his steps in the path of unreserved and joyful obedience to God. The way to God is here said to be a new and living one. The word for new is really newly slain, for the simple verb from which it is compounded signifies to slay. The avenue of approach to God has been opened unto us because Christ was put to death in this way. But this word new is not to be taken absolutely as though this way had no existence previously to the death of Christ, for all the Old Testament saints had passed along it too. No, it was neither completely new as to its contrivance, revelation, or use. Why then is it called new? In distinction from the old way of life under the covenant of works, in keeping with the new covenant, because it was now only made fully manifest, Ephesians 3.5, and because of its perennial vigor, it will never grow old. This way unto God is also said to be a living one, and this for at least three reasons. First, in opposition unto the way to God under Judaism, which was by the death of an animal, and would be the cause of death unto any who used it, excepting the high priest. Second, because of its perpetual efficacy, it is not a lifeless thing, but has a spiritual and vital power in our access to God. Third, because of its effects, it leads to life and effectually brings us thereunto. Again quoting A. Saphir, It is called a living way, because all that symbolizes Christ must be represented as possessing vitality. Thus we read of him as the living stone, the living bread, and so forth. Unquote. Probably this epithet also looks to Christ's resurrection. Though slain, the grave could not hold him. 
He is now alive forevermore, and by working in His people, repentance, faith, and obedience conducts them safely through unto life everlasting. This new and living way unto God has been, as A. Barnes said, consecrated for us by Christ. It is a path consecrated by Him for the service and salvation of man, a way of access to the eternal sanctuary for the sinner which has been set apart by the Redeemer for this service of men. Unquote. As Christ himself is the way, the meaning would be that he has dedicated himself for the use of sinners in their dealings with God. For their sakes I sanctify myself, John 17:19. As the way is also to be regarded as the path which we are called upon to follow through this world, as we journey to heaven, Christ has consecrated or fitted it for our use by leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. When he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them. John 10.4 William Gouge said, The phrase, Consecrated for us, giveth us to understand that Christ hath made the way to heaven fit for us and this by his three offices. First, as a priest, he hath truly dedicated it, and that by his own blood, as by the blood of sacrifices, things were consecrated under the law. Christ, by his blood, has taken away our sins, which made the way to heaven impassable. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.